I'm not sure who is happier about it, uh, all of you or me, but we're coming to the end of our three-week sermon series on stewardship. It has been the first for three or four years. Uh, I'm delighted it's coming to an end. I'm sure you are as well. And just to say, if you're here for the first time and you don't consider yourself a member of Highfield Church, much of what I'm going to say isn't uh, aimed at you. So please, I'm not saying we won't talk about it again for three years, but we don't talk about it all the time. But here on Sundays, through our Wednesday night gatherings in Devoted and through the midweek teaching notes, uh, we've already looked together at money as a spiritual problem, something that competes for our hearts. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. We've looked last week at giving according to your income. And so today, finally, we're looking at giving to the church. Now, I've said a number of times that I'm always reluctant to teach about giving. It is always controversial. I mentioned last week an extraordinary letter I got, which was mostly in capital letters. And our pastoral director came to console me and took it away so that I couldn't read it over and over again. It was 10 pages long. Uh, And it wasn't so much criticism as a disembowelment. So how could it not be controversial when money is a spiritual power that competes competes for our worship, our hearts, and our minds. Which of us thinks that it will give in easily? And right now, when everyone's facing higher bills and we're all facing a squeeze on our income, it's, let's face it, a hard time to be addressing this. But the church faces a similar squeeze on its income. And as I said last week, we also want to be able to pay our staff, none of whom are highly paid, a realistic increase in January. So Jesus' teaching on money is relevant, even in such a time as this. So as hard as it is, we need to address these issues right here and right now and trust that Jesus has words to us that bring life and hope, even in such a season as this. So what should giving to the church look like? What's God's design for giving? And how should that work its way out in the local church? First main point, biblical giving is about to whom rather than to what. Biblical giving is about to whom rather than to what. We give to honour God in tithes and we trust him in free will offerings. In other words, giving is fundamentally about relationship. That means biblical giving is about to whom rather than to what. When the widow's might is given, she gives all of her living To what? She gives it into the Lord's hands. Giving is about to whom rather than to what. Preparing for last week's Wednesday night gathering, I was brought up short by 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes that I'm not commanding you, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Okay, that's all right. It's the next verse that really, really hit me. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, yes, Paul's partly comparing their sincerity with that of another group of Christians. He's also asking them to compare their sincerity, their attitude in giving, to that of Jesus himself. I confess that was an ouch moment for me, a hard stare in the mirror moment for me. 
If Jesus gives like that, I found myself asking, how should I respond? If giving at its heart is about to whom we're giving, then the one to whom we're giving gave himself to the uttermost. Asking how Christ-like is my giving puts my giving in the starkest contrast. That puts long hours and some disappointments. That puts hard moments by hospital beds and gravesides with the grieving. That puts answering tricky emails and criticism sharp enough to really need a local anaesthetic all in perspective. As I've sometimes said in prayer over the years, Lord, I wouldn't do this for anyone else. And even then, it doesn't begin to touch Christ-likeness. We have always to remember to whom we're giving. His sacrifice, his humility, his boundless love, and seek to respond as far as God gives us grace in the same spirit. Our giving is about to whom rather than to what. I think we see that clearly in our passage from 2 Chronicles 31. It's quite startling, but remember it's the end of a journey rather than the beginning. For it shows us what happened when Hezekiah had invested so much time and energy in restoring the worship of God's people. If you look back in 2 Chronicles 29, he shows us uh, the purification of the temple that Hezekiah organized. 2 Chronicles 30 details how he coordinated the first celebration of the Passover for many years. So there's a significant restoration of holiness and of God's presence and favor. So 2 Chronicles 30, 26 and 27 tells us there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the days of Solomon, son of King David, king of Israel, there'd been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The, Prevites, the priests and the Levites stood to bless the people and God heard them for their pre- prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. So our passage marks the end of a journey, not its beginning. It shows us what happens when worship and discipleship is restored. It shows us what happens when God's people remember to whom they're giving rather than to what. How does the discipleship around giving get sorted? Well, the king orders in verse 4 that those living in Jerusalem should restore the portion due to the priests and Levites. Those living in Jerusalem respond, verse 5 tells us that as soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive and honey, and all the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. But many more than just those in Jerusalem respond. Everyone, we're told, living in the towns of Judah also respond, including some who are maybe displaced refugees from the northern kingdom of Israel, which was already in exile. All of these folk also bring a tithe of their herds and flocks. They pile them up in heaps. From the very beginning of the harvest, verse 7 tells us, right to its very end, they kept coming. So when Hezekiah comes to view the heaps, the chief priest tells him, since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we've had enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people and this great amount is left over. Verse 10. So much is given, it creates a storage problem solved by building new storerooms. A passage assures us that when we give as the Lord directs, when we remember that our giving is about to whom we're giving, then the outcome is abundance. Second main point, 
Biblical giving is about putting our money where our mouth is, our money out where our mouth is. In verse 2, Hezekiah provides for the restoration of worship. All the priests and Levites are assigned duties in the temple to offer burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanksings, praises, etc. If you like, they are all assigned duties in church. It's not quite a coffee team, not quite a rotor for the sound desk, the cameras or the computer, not quite a volunteer list for Highfield Kids or the worship team, but the principle's the same. They're all assigned duties within God's house to ensure that worship could be offered in a way that honoured the Lord. Then Hezekiah goes further in verse 3. The verse ends as written in the law of the Lord. All of these offerings were stipulated in the law, but who was to provide them wasn't. From his own possessions, we're told, Hezekiah provides offerings for each morning and evening, every Sabbath and festival sacrifice for all of them. He isn't required to do this. This isn't a tithe, it's not an obligation on the king, it is a free will offering, an offering given freely as a sign of the king's devotion. And yes, of course, one that sets an example for everyone else. He was putting his money where his mouth was. I remember a difficult sermon on giving that my vicar preached when I was a curate. Close to the start of the sermon, uh, my vicar basically said, uh, we can't tithe at the moment, meaning himself and his wife, but here are all the reasons why you should. Now, he looked like he was doing the opposite of putting his money where his mouth was, which I'm afraid lots of people were quick to point out afterwards. But there were good reasons why he couldn't. He was a Lloyd's name in a syndicate with punishing losses. He was desperately trying to avoid bankruptcy. And if you are a clergy person, if you are bankrupt, you are stripped of your office. He could have explained that. Maybe he should have done, but he didn't. He just stood up and basically said, do as I say, not do as I do. That as a leadership strategy, and as we all know to our cost as a parenting strategy, has rarely, if ever, worked. That sermon is one of the reasons why I've tried to stay arm's length from church finances ever since. I'm not a signature on any church accounts, and I go out of my way not to know who is giving what. Why? Simply because I don't want it to colour my view of anyone in any way. I don't want either to influence or be influenced unduly. For example, I can remember, I think, the only occasion where this has happened. I was passed a pledge form years ago, not here. And there was a query about it, that's why it was passed to me, that someone needed me to resolve. Now, the pledge form showed a 50% increase in giving, which should have been brilliant. But it dismayed me, to be honest. And you're thinking, why? Well, because the person whose pledge form this was had been banging the table in the PCC previously about giving. She had insisted incredibly assertively that we needed to challenge people. She wanted us, but honestly, preferably me, to go to people's homes and confront them about their giving. It was one of those whoa moments in the meeting. Think, how do we get on from here? So I called a tea break just to break the tension. Why did the pledge form with the 50% increase dismay me? Simply because her husband had been telling me the previous Sunday at great length at church about the great deal they'd got on Sky TV. So as I stood looking at this pledge form and remembering her rant in PCC about how others needed to be challenged to give more, I couldn't shake in that moment the dismay that they're giving 
from a two-person household with professional salaries was still a lot less than her husband had del delightedly told me they were paying for Sky Television. That didn't quite feel like, in that moment, putting our money where our mouth is. The example of Hezekiah, the example of God's people in Judah, shows that if we all play our part, abundance is the outcome. Third main point. Biblical giving sets people aside for ministry and mission. Biblical giving sets people aside for ministry and mission. It has been so from the very beginning. Deuteronomy 10, 8 and 9 tells us that the tribe of Levi was set apart for their ministry before God. That's why they have no share or inheritance among the fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. In other words, the tithe given by the other tribes was so that the Levites could be set aside for ministry and mission. So we see, he, see here in verse 4, Hezekiah orders the people to give the portion due to the priests and Levites so that they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. When the chief priest says in verse 10, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, he's not boasting. Notice that this is only since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord. If that had always been the case, I guess they wouldn't have needed to build new storerooms. They, the Levites had no land other than a narrow strip around their designated towns. That meant they were really vulnerable to poverty whenever this teaching wasn't followed. Biblical giving sets aside people for mission and ministry and to provide for people in which, for places in which worship, places in which ministry and mission can happen. It has been so from the very beginning. It was also the case in Jesus' own ministry. Luke 8, 3 tells us that some women were helping to support them out of their own means. It's also the case in Acts where we see the apostles and later the seven deacons set apart to further the ministry and mission of the church. From the very beginning and throughout, biblical giving has always been used to set aside people for ministry and mission. And that continues to be the case for us today. As we set aside our staff team to lead ministry and mission, as we provide the resources for us together to worship God and both serve and do mission in his name. That's why we're asking you, if you consider yourself a member of Highfield, to consider giving to Highfield. And prayerfully to consider increasing your giving, even in this very difficult season, because it's a biblical principle that we need to put into practice. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, it challenges us first, don't make your giving about the what. Don't make your giving about the what. Biblical giving is about to whom rather than to what. When our giving gets shaped by the what, issues about power quickly come into play. When our giving to church becomes conditional, if this happens, I'll give. If that happens, I won't. I don't approve of, the, I don't approve of this project, so I'll, I'll lessen the flow. I don't support that decision, so I'll stop giving. But I love this, so I'll open the taps wide. When our giving becomes conditional like this, then our giving has become more about the what 
but rather than to whom we're giving. Do we love Jesus less because the PCC made the wrong decision? Does, uh, does grace call less from us just because we don't like how the music has been handled in this place? Giving is supposed to be about honouring the Lord with our tithes and trusting him with our free will offerings. That's when our giving is most biblical because it's about to whom we're giving and we're committing it entirely, as did the widow, into the Lord's hands. But when our giving gets mixed up with the to what questions, with a a popularity contest about the minister or a referendum on direction or is used as a way of exerting pressure on a decision, I've seen it all over the years, then I fear our giving is about to what. And it seems to me that money as a spiritual power is then alive and at work in our lives. To what extent is our giving more about the the what rather than about to whom we're giving? If it is or if it has been, do we need a reset in how and why we give? Challenge the second, don't make giving someone else's problem. Don't make giving someone else's problem. It's really easy to do. That PCC member in Milton Keynes could see all the reasons why other people needed to change. She was passionate and blunt in saying so. She wanted me to go into people's houses and challenge them. But what she wasn't recognizing is that giving is always first, foremost, and last a me problem. It's a question that comes to each of us. It's not a question we should address to other people. It's always easy to judge others and to see how others with their lifestyle can give more. As I risked honestly judging that PCC member when handed that pledge form, struggled with it. I was dismayed by the apparent gap between her rant addressed at other people and her actions. As the whole church cheerfully joined in judging my former vicar for being unable to give. But giving is always a me problem. It's always a me problem, not something that's about everyone else. Where might you, where might we be tempted to see giving as someone else's problem? Where might we be judging others for their response, for their lack of discipleship? And maybe doing this, doing this when we need to resolve before the Lord for ourselves what he's calling us to give, how he's calling us to serve. Have we been guilty of making giving someone else's problem? Challenges us third to test the Lord in this. Challenges us to test the Lord in this. When God's people brought in their tithes and offerings, the result was abundance. Heaps of offerings that needed new storerooms to be built to house it all. Over the last three weeks, we've talked about money as a spiritual problem. Talked about it as a power that competes for our worship, for our hearts, even to define our worth. Jesus said we cannot serve both God and money, that we have to pick a side. We've talked about honouring God with our tithes and trusting God with our free will offerings, as did the widow whom Jesus so praised. 
We've talked about giving generously rather than sparingly, giving cheerfully, giving according to our income, and giving in time and talents as well, and not giving in certain circumstances, such as when we're in debt or where our spouse and our partner aren't Christians, yet still giving our hearts in service through the church. We've talked about having, how getting, giving right, sowing generously leads to abundance and to significant impact even on God himself, who loves the cheerful giver, impact on others and the world around us, and yes, even impact on ourselves. And we've talked this morning about remembering that giving is about to whom we're giving, rather than about to what, about daring to measure our giving by that of Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The challenge to Christ-like giving. We've looked at all of this together. So shall we put it into practice together? Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty in Malachi 3.10. Test me in this. Put it into practice. See whether the Lord really loves a cheerful giver. See whether giving generously leads to abundance. See whether giving that focuses on the Lord rather than on the what really leads to abundance. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Put this into practice, he challenges us. And see whether I keep my promises. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Malachi reads, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, said the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room to store it, which is what happened in the time of Hezekiah. Now, normally, the scriptures tell us it's a bad thing to test the Lord. In this passage from Malachi 3, we are specifically told, we are invited, we're challenged, even summoned to do this. The Lord orders us to test him in this. So will we put into practice what we have been learning about money and about giving? Will we step into it together? Will we step into it and allow the Lord to answer us? He says, test me in this. Will we take him at his word? and test him in this, and therefore allow him to throw open the floodgates of heaven.